The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. A lot to talk about with food prices, with energy, with metals. I think there's a lot going on, and I'm going to keep on emphasizing this point, and I'm going to try and tease this out to David as well, this notion that I still think that it's inflation short-term, deflation long-term, and that, as I jokingly have been saying, I think treasuries are probably about to make the biggest comeback since Lazarus. That's not a very popular... And by the way, when I say that, that's not me arguing that bonds recover. That's me arguing that treasuries recover, because the reality is uh, when you have a real risk-off period, except for this very unusual anomalous juncture, usually treasuries rally, drop in yield as spreads blow out and corporate credit uh, gets hit. Uh, I think that's probably still much more of a likely scenario. And I will say that I've been pleasantly surprised by the feedback I've gotten on the uh, YouTube channel for the lead lag. So Stay tuned. There's a whole bunch of new conversations coming out there. Any kind of help in subscribing, just viewership, obviously helps with the YouTube algorithm. So certainly I'm glad to see that. So David, I've come across you over the years quite a bit. Your handle is Silver Guru. So we're going to talk on silver a bit uh, later here. But for those who are not familiar with your background, what you've done, just explain to the audience who you are and, and what you tend to focus on. Well, I've been involved in the financial market since I was 16 years old, which is underage. So fascinated with investing money, how it works. I pestered my dad and called the Uniform Gift of Miners Act. If your parents or guardians sign a document that says, you know, we take responsibility, you can start trading stocks. So I did. And I wanted to go into finance and kind of got diverted. That's the story. I'll just leave it there. But always was in the market, learned about the futures commodities markets early on, did that, still do occasionally. But finance was the big thing. And as I studied money, I learned really quickly that the banking system is basically fraudulent, that all fiat money eventually fails, and that this is the first time that we know of and history, accurate or inaccurate, what we're told is it's the first time it's a global phenomenon. In other words, the dollar is the reserve currency of the entire world. So that means when the crash or the failure comes, it's not going to affect like just the Weimar Republic, uh, the hyperinflation in Germany, it will affect everybody just about. So that concerned me. So some of my mentors came through books, some also live, and uh, Harry Brown, Jerome Smith, Jim Dines. A lot of the old newsletter writers, I was a subscriber in my 20s and 30s. 
I got to meet these guys, and that was the industry I wanted to get into. So I actually did break into that industry in about 1999 via the internet, and I've been doing it ever since. I got a degree in engineering, and then I went back to school for my love. I've got a degree in finance, and got a master's in finance. And I've been writing the mortgage report, as I said, since 1999. The big picture look, I look at the macro economy, and I drill down and look at what's the best way to hedge against a failing currency or currency wars. And that's always been precious metals, although the crypto world has come to the fore in the last over 10, you know, more than 10 years ago. And I don't discount that too much. And so I'm just here to try to help people build and primarily secure their, as we get into the final stages of this great inflation, which will take the currencies down even further than they already are. And I'm a big proponent of John Exeter and the Exeter Pyramid, but I'll leave it there. Okay, so there's a lot of, I want to... Uh talk about based on that and usually when i'm doing these i like to listen first and then i kind of jot down words to focus on or terms to focus on that the guest uh, mentions and you you mentioned this this idea that fiat fails now this is something that's kind of more of a a you can argue maybe a philosophical discussion but is it the argument is the argument that history shows that fiat fails or that politicians fail and the reason i'm i'm framing it in that way is you know arguably fiat can be quite helpful when you have something like a pandemic where you can literally print dollars and give them to biotech companies if needed to throw enough money at something to to find a vaccine. The the problem, of course, is that it's never pulled back. All that stimulus just stays there. It's never there's never sort of the counter discipline. And a lot of that is because of political pressure. And part of that political pressure, I would argue, the central banks, too. But talk through sort of the, 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 what is the real reason that fiat, uh, from your vantage point, has historically failed and why could it be failing now? That's a great question. I've never been asked that before. Well, I, I have a strong opinion on it. It's really the people, and here's why. We, I've gotten arguments against you know, my position from uh, pretty scholarly people, some pretty good academics and others in the industry. So, well, wait a minute, gold standard failed. So now the gold standard doesn't fail. What fails is man, in other words, the political class, because they don't adhere to their promise. If we kept the promise to make a dollar worth 30, uh, $35 a pound of gold and held that promise, we wouldn't have had to close the gold window August 15, 1971. So ultimately, it comes down to trust, honesty, confidence, and it's a human problem more than it is how much we print. But they kind of go hand in hand. So I'd say it's, it's man's interaction with their inability to instill confidence or trust system and the massive printing goes hand in hand with that uh, disengagement of what they are saying and people watch what they do. Once confidence is lost, it's almost impossible to get it back. The only way it's come back in most instances is to go to a hard money standard. So like Sir Isaac Newton when the Bank of England was having so many problems, he was knighted not because of Newtonian physics, he was knighted because he put the Bank of England back on the gold standard. So that's that's my argument. It, it is more the political class, but they do pretty much go hand in hand. I think most people could follow my logic on that. Yeah, and it reminds me of an argument that Mark Faber of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report used to make back when QE3 was just starting. He made the argument very forcefully that if you want to short central banks and short the political class, political class you want to go along gold. 
Now, the issue, of course, as we've seen, is that everyone went long central banks instead, right, up until maybe recently. Talk through how you're seeing the current environment for a moment here in terms of how precious metals, gold in particular, we'll talk about silver too, but how gold in particular has been showing some signs of life and maybe why this notion that the last great bubble, which is faith in central banks, maybe that's actually starting to pop. Yeah, well, the background is is pretty evident. First of all, central banks on aggregate have been net buyers of gold since 2011. So 11, 12 years, they've bought more than they've sold. The other part, which I don't make a big deal out of, Basel III, where gold is a tier one asset, which is probably be a a tier star asset above all <laughs> above all paper. But anyway, it's equal to any any financial currency, any financial instrument, gold. Right. The idea that gold being the money of last resort is proven by history. That's the reason gold is held by central banks. They don't necessarily want to go back to a gold standard, but they they're hedged as much as anybody because if it's required. And confidence is lost, and the only way to reboot the system or reset is to go to gold, they will. However, that will be the last choice they'll make. They'll be absolutely forced into it, in my opinion. I don't think it's something that they readily want to have uh, available and it's going to happen. I mean, just digress a bit, and thanks for getting me in this platform. I'm really not a believer in the Sarah just Sarah nonsense. I did a very deep dive on it in the Morgan Report for my premium paid subscribers. I looked at it pretty hard. It's not in the Federal Register. And after I wrote my piece for my, again, my premium service, I got up. I had some communication purportedly from the woman who was the wife of the guy that wrote the original Nacera. And she said, what's on the internet is not very close to what the original proposal looks like. So. Am I right? Am I wrong? I don't know. We, we, we can't, you know, if everybody gets uh, gold backing and gets, you know, an extra million dollars in their bank account, it doesn't mean anything because if everybody gets a free million dollars, then it just dilutes the system even more. So sorry for the digression, but it seems that some in the alternative media uh, have their hopes maybe too high. I think the reality is higher interest rates, lower stock market, bond market crash, more or less, hard assets, food is going to be critical. Living your word is going to be critical, and changing your lifestyle to a more meager lifestyle is something that's going to be forced upon almost everybody. We're getting a lower lifestyle on aggregate than we are a higher lifestyle, which we've enjoyed for years and years and years, at the expense of exporting our inflation to every country in the world that has been forced to use the U.S. dollar reserve currency. Okay, so we're going to touch on on a lot of that. I, I am I, I do want to hear your thoughts on yeah, and we've talked to a number of people in these conversations in the past who have been bullish on gold and you know, correctly so. How do you think about investing in gold? Right, so there's the argument of ETFs. It's not really uh, backed by anything. Then there's gold miners. But when you look at gold miners, oftentimes that stock performance is more driven by the cost of energy than the cost of gold. Right, because it's obviously there's a lot of energy that goes into the mining and extraction process. So I'd like to hear your thoughts. You know, I think I have a rough sense of sort of how you answer this, but your thoughts on how people should think about considering gold and having an allocation to it. Well, first of all, you can be overweight with gold. I mean, some people get the idea that, you know, they see how corrupt the system is, how corrupt the political class is, and what's really going on. I get the idea that all they have to do is buy gold and everything's going to be wonderful. Not true. I mean, it's way more complicated than that. However, if you don't have any gold, you're pretty vulnerable. So, yeah, 10% is probably enough. I still advocate real metal for real people. The reason is that it's the 
best decentralized monetary option available to the human race anywhere in the world. I mean, if you're a fighter pilot and you bail out, in your survival kit, you have water, some food, a signaling mirror, some communications, and a gold coin. And they don't give you a couple hundred dollar bills. They're worthless if you're in you know, Asia or you know you bail out in some foreign country. So gold to start with, but you don't have to go overboard. You know, maybe five percent depends on the person and depends on your net worth. But some allocation. After that, I still like the miners at this point in time, but ETFs are fine with me. I'm not against paper gold derivatives as long as you start with the real metal first. That's my opinion. I've stuck to it from day one. I still believe that's the best. But I have many, I would say many, but I have some subscribers and they don't have any physical and they're, you know, in ETFs, the SLV or GLD or a two or three X ETF. And that's fine. Look, I'm free market. If you think that's the best way to allocate, do it. I actually prefer having something in hand. And there's something about putting a gold coin in your hand, at least for me, that kind of, I don't know, it's a bit of a wake up call. I remember when I was, you know, in my twenties and I bought my first Austrian Coronas. I didn't buy Krugerrands. They were the most popular, but the coin dealer said, look, uh, Austrian Coronas, you're getting the most gold for the money and gold is gold. So I remember putting those in my hand and feeling how heavy they were and thinking, God, this is, you know, I saved for like eight months for these few coins, you know, and I kind of got the concept that these things are valuable. So hopefully I answered that. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's good. Okay. So, so, a lot of the focus still remains on oil prices, energy prices. Talk talk through to the audience here how you're viewing the energy landscape, because a lot of people have been pounding the table on this idea that we've been sleepwalking into an energy crisis for some time and that it's about to get a hell of a lot worse. I'd like to kind of hear your thoughts as you think through the commodity space and, and the oil side of things in particular. Yeah, well, I don't know how familiar you are with my work, and it's not about me. It's about the message. but. I used to, in the speaking circuit early on, I would put up like a little DVD, the kind of synopsis of what I wanted to talk about. And I, By the way, I don't know how many people remember what a DVD is. Yeah. <laughs> it's just in fairness. Yeah, yeah, thanks. An iMovie. I don't know. You, you can help me, help me out here. But one was about the man who broke Britain. And the movie is a docudrama. I think the BBC actually did it. And it was about energy. And they have in this docudrama the finance minister of the U.K., and he makes this statement that always stuck with me from the time I heard it. And he says, you know, and I can't do a very good British accent, so all you UK people bear with me. But, you know, the world doesn't run on finance and money. It runs on energy. And energy, for the most part, means oil. And I thought, you know, that's it. Everyone says money makes the world go round, but really oil makes the world go round. And with all the alternative energies and nuclear power and all the stuff we hear about, Without oil, very little happens. And because we are in, I think, the final throes of easily obtained economic oil, we are going to see a decline because the reason the population doubled from the time Kennedy was assassinated to now is because of energies, because of oil, petrochemicals. The amount of labor in a barrel of oil is 25,000 man hours. So think about that. A barrel of oil is 25,000 man hours. So if I was paying a nice good wage of $20 an hour, the equivalent workforce of 25,000 man hours times $20 an hour is $500,000. That's if it was done manually. So is a barrel of oil worth 100 bucks or is it worth 500,000? Well, 
obviously we probably have an answer, but I'm saying that to make people think. So we look in reverse and say, well, what would you be paid in oil or in dollars for what we pay for oil? Who in China or Vietnam or India or any of these places where we have basically, in my opinion, slave labor would work for one third of one cent per hour, which is the equivalent of what I just said going the other direction. So I'd say oil is still underpriced relative to what it performs in society. Does that mean I'm rooting for $150 oil or $200 oil? No, I'm not. What I'm trying to point out is that we have relied on a a resource that, as far as I could tell, I don't believe in adiabatic oil. I think it is a uh, depleting resource, and I do think that we're going to have a price to pay. And we're going to look back, and our our ancestors are going to look at the Indianapolis 500 and say, "What the hell were you guys thinking, driving around this track for 500 miles, burning all this precious, you know, commodity?" So, very worried about it. One more comment before you come back in. My good friend Jim Poplava just wrote an article on financial sense. I think it's available for free. I do subscribe, so I'm not sure if it's a subscriber only or not. And I went through the whole thing yesterday and I actually wrote him an email. We had a conversation yesterday. He called me up and we haven't talked in a while. Went through this whole depletion and what Matt Simmons wrote in his book, Twilight in the Desert. And the reason Saudi is actually performing their function of making up any deficit in the oil supply isn't because they're actually pumping more oil. It's because they're depleting their above ground reserves. So I think we're in a situation that most people don't fathom. And a lot of people got off the peak oil mantra because it didn't look like it was real once the fracking phenomena started. But it's real. It's coming. And it's probably coming sooner than later. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Do you think that that's what, let's go back to this narrative of fiat sailing, if that's what ends up really breaking faith in, in the Fed? Because there's there's a school of thought, which I don't necessarily disagree with, that the Fed is entering a hiking cycle, but that hiking cycle only really affects the demand side, demand pull inflation, not the cost push that comes from energy prices? Yeah, that's a hard one. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not afraid to say I don't know. I I think they go hand in hand in this case. I mean, there's no substitute for oil. I mean, yes, wind power and yes, solar. But really, when you get down to it, what can you put in a gallon container that gives you that many man hours of labor? Nothing. You know, a solar panel won't do it in that compartment sized, you know, thing. I mean, you get a thermo nuke in your car. Yeah, someday probably have nuclear-powered cars, but not right now. So I think the cost push part will come in because, you know, look at the fertilizer situation. I mean, these are petrochemicals. Basically, we depleted the soil. It's nothing but a sponge that's empty. And then you come over with a diesel-powered machine and you put chemicals that are based on petroleum into the sponge. And now you have some means to grow whatever seeds you throw in there. So it's a very, very fragile system that most people have taken for granted 
And as this continues to unravel, more and more people are going to wake up to the idea that what we took for granted at one point in our lives are cherished, you know, further down the road. Yeah, and I will say it's interesting, right? I, I, there's, there's, there is a, a you can do a thought experiment around the progress of human civilization in the last century. Arguably, when you look at the totality of how long man has been on Earth, the last century has been an anomaly in terms of just the exponential growth of economies worldwide, removal from poverty of a good chunk of the population. and But if that was an anomaly, and now we kind of go back to sort of a mean aversion for uh, society, right, then oil could be maybe a catalyst for the, the standard of living dropping because it becomes more of a scarce commodity to get access to. There's uh, a lot of good points that you made. And I just gave a lecture down at uh, the one one conference in Las Vegas about a week ago. And my whole presentation was on silver. And I did the silver demand high case. And this comes from my friend, Matt Watson, who does independent analysis on all the metals. So in his analysis, it goes from the current day of you know 2022 through 2050 as a projection. And he looks at the entire sector. So silverware, photography, investment demand, jewelry, and all the automotive, power distribution, consumer electronics, semiconductors, all electronics, solar, brazing, everything. So the entire silver market. And in that projection, we has an assumption of the mining of silver and the recycling of silver. And he has it as a constant. And I don't think it's going to be a constant, but let's say it is. We'll just use this chart to talk about this. So in 2024, we're basically at a slight deficit. But by 2030, we're at about a 200, 250 million ounce deficit. And that's if we are able to recycle and mine as much silver in 2024, 20, excuse me, 2026 is what I said. I'm looking at the chart here. And that means that we're not getting a depletion in the silver. And we are. The grades of silver are going down. Some of the best miners in the world are seeing a degradation in ounces per ton because what they're digging out of the ground now is not as robust in ounces per ton. Plus, as we've talked about, and hopefully I spark some thought on the energy situation. I mean, the higher energy costs go, the more judicious choices will have to be made. And I'm going to upset a lot of people. I'm doing this more as a thought experiment for my sick sense of humor, but I mean, if oil got priced so high that you had to make a choice between mining gold or mining silver, the choice would be silver because silver is absolutely imperative. It's essential. It cannot be substituted for a high-tech society. Whereas gold, you could use gold in most applications for silver, but it's you know 80 times the price. So if you had to mine one, you would mine silver. So based on Matt's projection, and I agree with it, we're in uh, a very good long-term investment perspective for a legacy investment. If you were able to buy now and hold for 10 years or 20 years, depending on your age or your family situation, you want to will something to your kids or your grandkids or your great-grandkids, I would say silver would be part of that legacy investment. Now, if we go all the way to 2050, it gets ridiculous. I mean, at that point, we are only able to mine half of what the demand will be. So by that point in time, we would have eaten all of the above ground supply that exists today and still be short. How big is the recycling potential on, on silver? Meaning 
you know, electronics that use silver or whatever it would be, and then you know, somehow they get it back and reuse it. Is there is there an element of that when it comes to the space that's worth talking about? Yes, there is. First of all, um, a lot of people have the misconception, and I've certainly tried to dispel it from the first book I wrote to the last book I wrote. Silver is recycled, but not to the level that it could be. In fact, I'm going to digress for a moment. When I was in Beijing, I met with the Mining Bureau, went up to CIDIC, which is kind of their city bank. I mean, I was, I was up at pretty much the top level. And the number one thing that they were concerned about was recycling of silver. That, they don't want to waste anything. So coming back on that point, we do recycle somewhere between 150 million, maybe even up to 200 million ounces of silver annually. But it's static. We haven't gone above that. But we do have the potential to recycle more. And as it becomes more valuable, as every as we start to get more what I'll call frugality throughout society, not just in the United States, but everywhere, and we're more apt to pay attention to what we're using and how much it costs and how long it lasts and all those type of things. I think we're going to see more and more recycling. I mean, there's people that don't maybe recycle their aluminum cans as an example. Well, times get hard. They're going to not only recycle their aluminum cans, they're going to look for them on the side of the road to collect them. You kind of get the picture I'm trying to paint here. But no, there's a vast amount of recycling that can take place. And full disclosure, I am involved in this company quite heavily. I'm the only one in the space that writes about it. It's called Envirometal, E-N-V-I-R-O-M-E-T-A-L. It's on a junior exchange. You can look it up. You can Google it. I do own shares. I've been involved basically from day one. It is a recycling leaching agent that we have patented three times, and it is inert. So it replaces cyanide, and it does it where it doesn't harm the environment at all. So it's about as ESG as you could get for those that know what I mean by ESG. So, yes, there's a lot of room to the upside for recycling here. Yeah, what I recommend uh, is physical first, and then next for me is the miners, but people don't want the physical, and they want to go to the SLV or the PSLV. You know, that's fine with me. <clears throat> when uh, people subscribe to my premium service, the first thing that they get is how to use the Morgan Report. And what I advocate in that document and video is that you 20% of your overall portfolio is in this sector, in the resource sector not just gold and silver, but resources. Right now, it's primarily aimed at gold and silver because outside of lithium and uranium, which we have, we don't have a lot left in the, man, in the I would say manage, in the uh, suggested portfolio. So of that 20%, I go through how much is physical and how much goes into top-tier miners, mid-tier miners, and speculative situations. It's all broken down. It's basically based on your age and your risk tolerance. So there's no one-size-fit-all, but I outline it in a general way that's very helpful to most people to not overweight, let's say, in the speculative section if you're 70 years old and you're retired, you know. But if you're younger, you certainly can take more risk. So that's it in a general way. I try, I'm very cognizant of the way you go broke in the gold mining business is you buy every junior miner out there. That's a good way to lose a lot of money. The best way to make money in the mining industry is to buy the top you know, blue chips that you can, and then use that as your base foundation, and then move downscale from there in small quantities. So 70% of the money allocated to the stock side would be in top tier, 20% would be in mid tier, only 10% would be in speculative situation. I want to go back to food for a moment, David. I mean, I keep looking at these different ETFs that 
track commodities like corn, soybeans, wheat, uh, sugar. And these things just keep on going parabolic. I mean, it's not even abating. And I keep going back to this point that at some point, food prices have to be deflationary because it's going to take consumer spending out of the economy. And most people have no goddamn clue what's coming with that because we haven't seen it on the shelves. You're starting to see it a little bit, but you know, futures markets are not present just yet, right? Talk through how you're viewing the the kind of ag space here and how you're seeing this sort of concern that we may see some some form of not quite famine. You certainly hope it's not going to be like that, but something that could be unlike anything any generation's seen in a while. Okay, you asked. <laughs> I don't know how many haters I'm going to get, but you know, you have to verify for yourself. So I've been concerned about food well above beyond the the what's happened now. In other words, I was an early adopter, as I usually am, on trend, major trend changes. So I was advocating for food a few years ago. And I did a, an interview at my request with David Dubine of Adapt 2030 that focuses on the solar cycles and food production. So I interviewed him about how he saw the situation. And what he told me kind of dropped my jaw. He said in the solar monitor minimum, I think it's called, that the average food price increase was 700%. And that was not something I expected to, to learn. I mean, I wanted to learn what it was. I expected it to maybe double food prices. So we talked about that. So if you're in Indonesia and 40% of your income goes to feed your family, and the other 60% is your utilities, your housing, your entertainment, whatever, and food prices double, I mean, now you've got 80% of your budget for food. So how do you pay your rent? And that's what's coming. Now, I'm not saying it's going up sevenfold. I'm just repeating what I learned from David Dubine at ADAPT 2030. But what I'm suggesting for your consideration is what you said. This is far, far more impactful than most people realize at this point in time. I think they're going to call up you know, legacy foods or XYZ dehydrated foods. And I'm not against it. I think it should do that. But that's not a long-term solution. And this is going to get to where I could kind of look back at my history. And I remember becoming a hard money advocate, an honest money advocate in my 20s and learning from my mentors, as I mentioned earlier. And in the Wall Street Journal, there used to be a little cutout ad that said, what, what do you do when money won't buy food? <laughs> that was the title of the ad. And it was for long-term emergency food storage. But that was way back when. I mean, people like me have been looking at, you know, what could happen in these great inflations and they do eventually end and what the repercussions are. And you don't have to go overboard. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm not trying to put the fear card out. I don't sell dried food. I'm just saying that once we start down in the cycle, which we have, it's extremely difficult to bring it back up to par. In other words, lost once you've lost 10% of the food supply, either by Soil erosion, lack of labor, sunspot activity, I don't care. Once you've lost that, you can't get it back very easily. It's like the stock market. Most people you know, don't know that when you lose, I, and I don't know the numbers, I'll give you the right idea, but you lose a 15% in your stock, it's got to go up 25% or something like that. I forget the exact math in order to break even. It's kind of the same thing here. Once you get a degradation in the food supply, it's only off 10%. You've got to work twice as hard to get it back to where it once was. So I'm not scare anybody, but being prepared is being aware. And I think there will be famine, but I don't think it's going to be in the United States. 
but it will be price prohibitive for some people. In other words, people that are used to eating a certain quantity of protein on a weekly basis may not be able to afford it a year out from now. Well, the good thing is that uh, lentils apparently fix this, uh, according to <laughs> according to Bloomberg. If you've seen any, any of the, uh, the memes I put out. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Well, if you would have, you know, if you're on my premium service, I've made, you know, many millionaires that they follow what I teach. As I said, 70% of the money goes into the top tier. And if you bought Franco Nevada at 19, it's hit new highs today. I'm, I'm, I'm lying. It, it's, it's hit new highs recently at 106. Well, you're pretty happy. So we've featured the royalty streaming companies quite a bit in the Morgan Report because that's the best place to put your money if you want exposure to the gold or silver mining industries. And we've featured zinc companies and lithium companies and cobalt companies and, you know, copper, uranium, all of them, pretty much. I was the first on the rare earth elements. But as far as bang for the buck, big money, solid investments, investments, buy, hold, and, you know, weather the storm kind of thing, it is the royalty companies. And that's what we've been on from day one. And we're part of the few that do that. I mean, most gold newsletter writers, and I consider myself a little different than that, but, you know, I could fall in that classification. All they talk about is, you know, XYZ mining company that's a secret mine over in some secret spot with a secret gold find. I mean, it's just ridiculous how hypey and the hyperbola that's going on, hyperbole that goes on with the mining industry from the investment perspective. But I ignore most of that stuff and put solid money in it. So it's done very well. I mean, we bought Pan American at about 250. We're up like, we're up 10 baggers on most of these things. If you're an investor, now not everybody found me when silver was at $5 the ounce, but even like First Majestic, we bought it at four bucks and it got under $4 for a long time, like a year and a half. But I kept telling my readers that this is it. This is a good one. Of course, we did quite well with that. And then in 2016, when we hit the bottom, I started trading. And I said, buy First Majestic as our trade. And I forget the exact numbers, but it was something like, I think it got under our four again. I think it was like, went from like three to 24. And silver went up quite substantially that year, but nothing like a four or five bagger like we did in the equity market. So if you know when to be in the equity side of the precious metals, you can outperform the bullion itself. But on the longer term, you really should have both, and you really got to know the timing. I do think that as we get more and more pressure to go to safety, which means gold and silver, people will look for whatever they can that has gold and silver in its name. And that will be, of course, the top tier, the mid-tier, and all these juniors that are out there with gold or silver in their name. There'll be a run to gold, I think, like we've never seen before. And I think the host asked me a while back, what did I see? And I didn't finish that thought. And that was that I've seen the run to gold start. Be based on my connection with refiners, fund managers, bullion banks, all of that, the run to gold started, not in a massive way. As I talk about the run to gold, I use the metaphor, the analogy that you start a walk and then a brisk walk, 
and then a jog, and then a trot, and then a run, and then an all-out sprint. Right now, we started uh, to pick up our pace on the on the walk, and we're getting to a brisk walk. So from that metaphor, we're starting the run to gold. Oh, I prefer not to. I just don't want to misstate anything. I think, you know, that's a great question. I just don't want to mislead anyone. I think if you just type in gold royalty company it'll bring it investor investor will do a good job probably better than me i don't want to confuse it but basically you're you're a finance company so what you do is you say xyz mining needs so much money to finish off their mine so franca nevada says okay we'll give you this money and because of this money from everything you produce from that mine we will get four percent of your gold. So it doesn't matter what the gold price is. They're getting 4% gold no matter what the price is from now until the end of the mine life. That's a cor- that's not a corny, that's an example, pretty simplified, but you're getting real metal. And that's that's the whole key. And in other cases, frankly, I might say, we'll get we want 3%. I'm just making up numbers, but this is kind of standard. And we not only get that mine. But on all of your property, anything that you find within the next 10 years, we also get 2% of it or whatever. So there's different ways to look at it. But basically, it's a finance house that gets paid in precious metals is as basic as I can make it. Yes, it's a yes, no answer. I mean, it's right. right. There's a book called The Invisible Crash by Jim Dines, and it shows, you know, the Dow's making these new highs. But if you adjust in the price of gold... And you look at the Dow in terms of the price of gold, it was actually going down. And he called it the invisible crash because all you see is a bigger number. So therefore, it means it's worth more. No, the currency has been depreciated. So back to your question, interest rates do play a part in taking the gold price down if and only if it's real. What does that mean? You know well what I'm going to say. Real inflation, according to the government, is now 8.5%. So until you get to 8.5% on the long bond, which I don't think will ever happen, you're net zero for hurting gold. Oh, it may go down when interest rates are announced and they put up 0.5, you know, 500 basis points and all this stuff that's probably going to happen. And yeah, gold will react temporarily, but it has no real significance until the interest rate does what Volcker did. When interest, when the official inflation rate was at 13% or 13.5%, I forget, but I lived through it. Volcker put the interest rates up roughly to 20%. So you got a 7% real interest rate return. And that killed the gold market, crushed the bond market. And the best thing you could have done was sell your gold at, you know, 800 an ounce and moved into the 30-year treasury and gotten a 17, 17.5% yield for 30 years. And watch the interest rates come down. The bond price double, double, and double again. I mean, it's a gift that'll never happen again in my view i will say real quick on on the narrative around rising rates i keep going back to this point i think treasury's long end is going to see one of the greatest comebacks since lazarus uh, as we're talking i just put this tweet out you know, talk about gold lumber is down eight percent and i keep banging the table on this point that the next wave lower any kind of real risk off has to come from housing and lumber is the key component that goes into building so i you know there's a lot of interesting dynamics we will maybe kind of tease out Absolutely. And thanks for bringing up the topic. First of all, I'm fond of the expression that most Americans are overfed and undernourished. So I'll give you a a quick personal anecdote. I was at the uh, signing of the um, bill in Utah with the governor that put uh, gold and silver back into the people's power. In other words, anywhere in Utah, you could buy any product as long as both parties agreed 
for gold and silver. At that event, I met a guy from that was U.S.-based but lived in Japan for quite some time, and he told me the story. And he said when he got to Japan and he would go out to eat his single, he didn't cook much, he would get a meal, but it was, you know, from an American's perspective, insufficient calories. But actually, it was the right amount of calories. And he said he lost, I forget, 20 pounds over a six-month period, but he adapted to what he needed rather than what he wanted. And he felt healthier, he felt lighter, he felt better, and all that stuff. So I think there is going to be, along with this degradation in the currency, there is a great awakening that takes place at the same time. So a lot of people will be looking at the reality of the situation. And I think you outlined it pretty well. It has to do with, you know, what is really valuable. Well, something of high nutrition is more valuable of something that isn't. And I think people will start to realize that there'll be a lot less food waste. We're so wasteful in this country. And just to go one step beyond another quick story, but I was on an airline flight and I was uh, leaving, I think, a couple of really tall, pretty tall guy. And these two Norwegian or Scandinavian type guys came in. And they were taller than me, six, 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 seven, six, eight, I don't know, right on up there, young guys, I'm middle-aged at this point. And they were talking back and forth about in, uh, visiting the entire United States. They did a roundabout look at, you know, I don't know if they went to every state, but they had a good look at all the United States, ended in D.C. and they're flying home. And I asked the one sitting next to me, you know, with my avid mind, if you could talk about one thing in all of your travels in the United States, what would be the one thing that you would come back and, and say? And he says, all Americans are fat. Wow. That put me back in my seat. I was carrying a bit of a belly at the time. And I thought that was a profound statement because I asked him what's the most significant thing he could say. So I'm not trying to harp on it. What I'm trying to do is make the point that you've made. We have to wake up and we have to be more mindful of everything that we do from this point forward. And either you're going to do it intellectually with help like this kind of spaces program, or nature is going to force it on you because you just can't buy the same foodstuffs that you used to be able to buy because the costs are higher. But the value of real things is going to be more and more adapted to society at large. And, you know, you're not going to the movie, as our host said, you know, you're going to have to make that choice. You're going to buy food, you're going to the movies. We're going to buy food. You know, you're going to do your own movie at home or whatever. But hopefully I didn't beat that dog too hard, but I think it's a very, very salient point. In fact, it's probably one of the most important ones we made during this discussion, in my opinion, other, this is probably number one, and I say oil, the oil situation is number two. I will also add a there's, there's maybe an unintended consequence to taking the other side of that, which is that if food prices keep doing what they're doing, well, that actually may have very harmful health effects because people might switch more towards carbs, right, which tend to be comparatively cheaper, right, versus a lot of yeah, other. No. Right, yeah. so which is just another kind of way of different spin on on the idea. It's like no, you're right. I mean, I'll just throw in. You know, I have a place in Mexico and. You know, some are very poor. And I saw this gal and she was extremely overweight. And my heart was hurt for her. And so she went to like a restaurant on the back door and they gave her like all these tortillas. And I just I ached because I know the reason she's so big is she's eating nothing but carbs because they're the cheapest. What she really needs it's a high protein diet and she could lose a lot of that extra weight and be a lot happier. But it costs more. And uh, so your point's well taken. 
I have not, not on the aggregate, but in individual cases I have. I was very close with Sterling Mining when they took over the Sunshine Mine, and they had a tailings, couple tailing ponds on some of the properties. It was more than just the Sterling Mining had several projects, actually. And one of them was this tailing uh, situation, but it never worked out. And I've been involved in three of those. And so far, they've all been uneconomic. They look good on paper. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying it's got to be economic. And with fuel costs doing what they're doing, there's probably a way to do it. In fact, that's really a question you should probably combine and get to uh, Dwayne Nelson, the CEO of Environmental, and ask him that question. Because there might be a way to do it in situ or, or with the leach process that is economic. So I think it's a great idea. But uh, so far, my experience has been it hasn't been viable. But I haven't looked at it on aggregate and really done it back yeah. and how much is yeah. really out there. Everybody that's been here for the hour, certainly appreciate it. Please make sure you follow David here. Uh, check out Search, uh, The Morgan Report. And David, first time you and I talking, first time I think I assume you've, you've done spaces. Definitely appreciate the hour uh, with us. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.